Hello world, welcome to another episode of the Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is River Kenna. Hi River. Hey yo. It's good to have you. Um, and I'm dying to know what's an idea that's been helping you live well. Yeah, I'm going to stick with my large scale answer for this one, <laughs> which is basically <laughs> just, yeah, somatic descent, somatic resonance, somatic meditation, whatever we kind of want to call it, the core idea of just spending time in the body as like, yeah, treating the body with just friendship and some degree of basically animism. Let's go with somatic animism. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah. And I don't know. I started somatic meditation like seven, eight years ago. I don't know at this point. But it's one of those immediate shifts in my life where I can just look back to before and after. And so much is different that it's just utterly incomparable. Like, right. indescribably large shift, yeah. Yeah, so people are going to hear you um, today's river and kind of get a feel for how you are today. So what can you tell us about the before times, though? It's uh, what was there that um, the really made you feel that you require some sort of um, a practice to adopt in order to, to change? Yeah, the, the kind of tight version of this is that I had a really out-of-control mind and inner monologue going on to the point where, like, when I was little, I literally did not know that people went to bed and, like, slept for the night and then woke up the next day. I thought <laughs> everyone just went and laid down, stared at the ceiling, while their mind looped endlessly for five, six, seven hours. Maybe they drifted off a little bit before sunlight. Maybe not. Those are the bad nights. <laughs> and then it's back to the next day. And when I started finding out that people like fall asleep in 15, 30 minutes or something and are just out for the night, I think I was, I don't know, 12, 14, somewhere around there when I first found that out. And I was like, oh, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> like, this isn't okay. And that was also really indicative of just like, yeah, my day-to-day -day experience was just there was that constant chewing in my head, just thought patterns looping and looping and grabbing something and chewing on it, chewing on it, chewing on it. And it never, ever stopped. And I, yeah, spent a lot of time just not, you know, you're a kid, you're a teenager, you don't know that the world isn't what happens to you, right? That there's other yeah. possible lives out there. <laughs> and when I was about 22 or so, I moved to Korea and I had like in my head that, okay, this is a clean break. I can be a less miserable person now. I'm going to be a different mm. type of person <laughs> because that's what moving somewhere else does, right? My problems will surely mm -hmm. not follow me at all. <laughs> and yeah, I got to like, I got to my apartment in Korea, looked around and I had gotten, I'd gotten stationed at a school that was 40, 50 minutes away from the nearest foreigners. And I was like, oh, I'm just alone with my inner monologue 
my screaming thoughts and my mind here too, I might not survive this year. And I remember like standing in my apartment, just recognizing that like, oh yeah, there's like better than 50-50 odds that I don't make it through this year. Mm. And just realizing, oh. You mean seriously? Oh, 100%. Yeah, like it was just a stone cold realization, yeah. But do do you mean like flying back home or like ending your life? Oh, my life. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Fully, fully done, yeah. But yeah, so that was a big like, yeah, just cold, hard moment that struck me. And I was like, something has got to shift here because whatever I'm doing is not working at all. And long story short, like I went to meditation because that's what you do when (laughs) your brain is broken. People are, oh yeah, go meditate. That'll fix up all your stuff. And it didn't so much for me. It seems to work for some amount of people, others not so much. I was firmly on the no side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And a big part of the problem for me was that all the meditation instruction that I came across kept me very firmly in the head. It was all just up here. I mean, yeah, listen to most introductory meditation material and just count the number of times they say the words mind and thought over and over again. It's a lot. (laughs) Even nowadays, like I just tried out the Sam Harris waking up app Mm -hmm. and made it through very little of it because I just kept getting fed up. He wouldn't stop saying, mind, your mind, your thoughts, your thoughts, mind. And that was how it felt, that it just kept drawing attention and drawing focus and drawing awareness back to the source of the problem, back to my overactive mind, my constant looping thoughts. It just kept me there and created a little extra space around it. That was fine. But it wasn't dealing with the core issue at all. My usual comparison is that it was like I was caught in a bear trap and someone had given me ibuprofen for it. And like, <laughs> it's better with the ibuprofen. I'm not going to yeah. say no to the ibuprofen, but yeah, it was doing nothing to actually get me out of that trap. It was pretty horrifying. Until I came across Reggie Ray, Somatic Descent, and it was just a full meditation program that didn't really do much by way of talking about thoughts, the head, the breath, anything up here, basically. Mm -hmm. And very fully just went, okay, can you feel your feet? What do your feet feel like? Sense the joint of your big toe. Can you sense how there's like a little bit of personality in there? What's the personality of that joint in your big toe? And how does that feel a little different from your normal experience? And it took me like a few months of doing that to realize how well it was working. Of Not only the toe, obviously, <laughs> up through the whole body <laughs> and everything. But yeah, it took me a few months to realize like, I don't have looping thoughts anymore. Like that was just a thing that was my entire life experience, my whole life. And after a few months of this somatic meditation stuff, that just wasn't an issue. I was just walking around empty head, no monologue, just doing fine. And then it would come back when stuff happened and it'd be fine. But I could pretty immediately just go like, eh, I don't want that right now. I'm not in the mood for mm-hmm. looping thoughts or 
thinking about stuff or verbal ideation on this. And yeah, just put my awareness into my knees, my hips, my shoulder, whatever. And it just drifts away, gets the message and goes. That would have seemed utterly impossible to me for the first 22, 23 years of my life, right? Wow. And since then, it's been, I don't know, yeah, however many years, mass number of years. <laughs> and <laughs> that is still like a constant gratitude that I have, that that's just one of the nicest things in my experience is every time someone reminds me what my mind was like for most of my life. And I get another sense of like, oh, I'm free from that. <laughs> and like, I've got my own stuff to work on. <laughs> There's right. a lot going on there. But that thing that was the core tone of my entire early life, it's just not there anymore. It just doesn't do that to me. And that's Yeah, amazing. that's... Yeah, first of all, it is. And I really... Um... I really re relate to what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, sleepless nights, definitely being a, a victim of, of many of those. Mm. Um, was there ever something that was, um, uh, have you ever stumbled across like moments of grace where you could think and think about things that kind of captivated you that weren't of the like terrorizing type, like, doing math exercises or something in your head or thinking about other things like before finding it. And I'll tell you why I'm asking, because I think that people who say I overthink things are actually just don't have the, a good object of thought. Mm. Right. And, um, because actually, if you think about it, having like all this brain power to go for more and more, like oh, more hours than a normal person would, that could be a superpower if you utilize it toward um, good ends, right? It's super important to know how to tune out and just sleep. But um, yeah, just wondering if, if you did have things before uh, the somatics that you would go to to run away or would it everything would just be too hard to tune into yeah i'm gonna give two answers to that the first one of which is that like yeah my i was really really good at most stuff that i tried to do my early life i was a straight hmm. a student i did all the sports i was quite good at all of them and that was largely because I had this constant chewing in my mind and I needed something to sick it on, right? So mm. I just, you know, I'd be lying awake at night and like, okay, literature class, what were we working on? It was Edgar Allan Poe. We've got this, this, this. And just letting my brain take that. And yeah, the image in my mind right now is a, a dog with a two toy, just like whipping it back and forth all over <laughs> the place let it do that with the stuff that it was useful to do that with. And it got me good grades. It got me good at like strategy playing football, American football. And yeah, just helped with a lot of that stuff. Second answer. <laughs> oh, also I did for most of my life. I did like a ton of writing, both fiction and essay. 
And that was how a lot of that stuff got worked out was my head would not ever stop looping. So I would just give it like, okay, here's the fictional situation. What needs to happen next? What's the new thing, et cetera. So yeah, there were like useful things I could hand it and it would do stuff that benefited me later on. The second answer <laughs> I'm going to give is that that didn't matter very much because mind itself, systematic mind is intrinsically unbalanced in that way. There's a, how much of my framework do I want to put here? <laughs> yeah, I'll just, I'll borrow a framework. The, you know, McGilchrist, right? The left hemisphere, right mm -hmm. hemisphere, yep. et cetera. Yeah, so I don't know anything about the neuroanatomy or like how accurate the brain stuff on any of that is. So I'm not going to borrow much of that, but there is an experience there that is extremely, just extremely clear to me that I tend to refer to as the systematic mode. That's more left brain and the spontaneous mode, which is more right brain. Systematic mode is kind of where the obsession and looping thoughts come in. There's an intrinsic, hmm. yeah, an intrinsic pull towards focus in the systematic mode, right? In the left brain. And what focus does by definition is blocks out other stuff, right? You've just got the one thing that you can focus on and have it, and you can work with it, play with it, do things to it, and you're good. And then uh, spontaneous mode, left brain, right brain, sorry. <laughs> I'm not used to using the left and right stuff. I just tend to say systematic and spontaneous. But the spontaneous mode, much more open focus, much more, <sighs> yeah, just open. I'm like sitting in the experience of it at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, open, spontaneous. Uh, the, relationship, the relationship to the body is also incredibly different where systematic mode sees the body kind of as something I am driving around in. I am an here. object. Yeah, I'm behind yeah. the eyes driving this object that is literally and metaphorically beneath me, right? <laughs> and yeah, like takes the body part by part. The hand is not fundamentally different from a hammer to the systematic mode. They're both just tools that can do what I need them to do. In the spontaneous mode, the, McGilchrist has a great quote on how like only the right the right hemisphere of the brain has a whole body image. So when we find a way to experience the whole body in an open way and in not focused, not cut off, not atomized way of just, this is the body I'm here in it. That's already a movement towards this spontaneous mode. And the key thing with like the thought loops here is that there's this pattern where because systematic mode is so good at problem solving, that's what it's there for. That's mm -hmm. why it exists. It's amazing at solving problems. So it will constantly and does constantly create problems for itself to solve and turns everything into a problem because that's what it is equipped to handle. Mm -hmm. so, and over and over and over again, I kind of can't unsee it these days where people are making and sustaining problems for themselves because it's fun to solve problems 
And then they lose track of the fact that they're doing it for themselves and start to feel really bad about these unsolvable problems that they just keep working on and keep working on. And if I just like focus harder and focus more narrowly and really dig into it when really like if you can move over towards spontaneous mode towards this other style of experience, basically towards the body, towards like somatic resonance, it's not even that that is the solution to the problem. It's just that you can kind of stand back and recognize that it's not a problem. You made, you made a thing for yourself that was fun for you to play with, and now you're pissed off that it's not fun to play with. So stop doing that and just be more open with it. And yeah, that's like the part of my second answer, because no matter what object I gave my mind to chew on and chew on and focus and work with and do the thing to... It was doing that. It was problematizing to solve a problem, to solve, to solve, to solve, to focus, to focus, to focus. And that in itself is claustrophobic. I mean, focus, yeah, literally claustrophobic. So what was needed was not just finding a better object. I had a lot of good objects. What was needed was the ability to nest that part of my mind in a wider, more expansive way of being so that I could choose when it was appropriate to use it mm. and notice when am I just using it to torture myself on accident. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's um, yeah. I'm, I'm reading uh, Miguel Christ's uh, the matter with things these days. Mm. And I find it fascinating. I recommend to anyone basically. And um, yeah, it's giving me the idea that basically our challenge in life is if our hemispheres you know and it could be as you use it like metaphorically speaking but engaging in dialogue in a dialogue that's respectful because we know from split brain patients that we basically have two selves in us and they are largely um, independent of each other and almost self-sufficient in a way but they're very very different and we can only feel real peace if they combine, if they join forces and work toward the same goal, which is doing good unto this whole being, right? Body, mind, and everything is one. And that is basically the challenge we're facing. And he's also making the point that in the West, we're very, very uh, left brain oriented and we get stuck in this uh, we get stuck with, with um, you know, well, our consciousness is, is full of this one actor who is very good at verbalizing and um, making up stories, confabulation. And I, I really like the, the framing that you give it, or maybe you that comes from a Gilchrist, but never mind, of, yeah, just working on these problems and then having to come up with problems to solve. And I will say that I do think that the fact that we do have problems in our life is something to be celebrated. I think that the the other extreme is you see people trying to seek a life for themselves that doesn't involve any problems. I think that's self-defeating because you want to use some creativity to have a, a sustainable source of pleasure like through that and overcome problems. But I completely agree, and I think I think you'll agree with me here, that, you know, my problem today is 
eating well, for example, and making the small choices that are good for me. And these are problems in a sense, the problems that are completely soluble. They're nothing hard. Whereas this uh, left hemisphere is often trying to solve problems, which is like, where do I want to be in 10 years? Right. And it's like, how much money do I want to make in 10 years? And it's, I find it, and in that sense, that this conversation is very timely because I've been thinking a lot about the goals that I'm setting myself and all that. And I'm amazed sometimes to find myself in a position where I think about these long-term things and I'm, first of all, reacting to them as if they are the most pressing things in my life. When, in fact, the privilege I have about of, of thinking about these things the privilege I have comes about exactly because I am well fed and everything is good in my life pretty much, right? It's a privilege to be um, thinking about these like long-term things. And then second of all, it really is amazing that we just can completely forget the, the here and now context and how how massively unknowable the future is and not understand, you know, like really give no time to thinking about either the, the fortune or the misfortune, the misfortune that could hit us between now and five years, right? It's like so many disasters could happen. So many good things could happen if you consistently, um, connect with people or learn new skills. Good things can happen. Bad things can happen. And we take into account none of these sometimes. We're just stuck in like, here I am as I am. And I'm thinking about five years from now. And it seems completely insoluble. And it's making me miserable. And I, I do find it um, ridiculous, honestly, that we're able to do it to ourselves. Um yeah, if if we are to look at the at the um, somatic related things, I you took a course, and I'd love to hear from you, and then became a teacher yourself, and I'd love to hear from you some of the, and I know this this gets into nonverbal territory, but if <laughs> if you'll try to f the ineffable. Um, what is it about the body it's just is it just a place that's not it's it's not where the left hemisphere can go to and so by asking this question you're forcing yourself to go a little bit into right hemisphere mode not quite so the yeah this gets thorny so first and foremost the main thing i'm pointing at with like Spontaneous mode, spontaneous style of experience is, yeah, just an internal thing. There's just like kind of a flip that you can, a switch that you can flip. And there's like, oh, there it is. Like my entire existence tissue just relaxed, basically, <laughs> and has space to, yeah, not problematize things, not focus down on stuff, but just to playfully... It's like an existential freestyle type of thing, almost. Where you can just flow where attention wants to flow and where your being and eros wants to move, right? But the... Uni yeah, so the body is uniquely good, not because the left hemisphere, the systematic mode, 
can't go there, it can. Like a lot of body scans, uh, especially in programs that I've worked with previously, like do the body scans in a very systematic way where you're breaking the body down to parts and just going part by part and feeling the body as a head self, as a me behind the eyes. I am the one feeling the foot. I am feeling mm. the calf, the knee, the whatever. Mm. And yeah, if you start running through a body scan for yourself and just kind of check, does it kind of feel like there's a me up here who is doing the feeling of everything else? So far when I've run this exercise with people, it's like 98%. Yeah, it feels like there's a me behind the eyes and I am the one feeling the toes, feeling the torso, feeling my shoulder. And that is fairly systematic coded where it's still me up here, still breaking the body down to parts and feeling them from the outside. What the body does offer is this very like grounded switch that we can do where it's not me feeling the foot instead allow the foot to feel itself, allow the hips to feel themselves. Allow the spine to notice itself, to wake up to itself, to just shine its own vividness into the field of experience a little bit brighter, right? And this move is quite, this is like a 60% move, I think, where 60% of people mm. I run through this exercise find something where they're like, oh yeah, I can let the thighs feel themselves. And it's very different from me up here feeling the thighs cool and then 40 percent of people have a harder time getting to it and we have to backtrack to a few other exercises to beef it up but <laughs> yeah so this mode is like really pervasive and i've tried to, i tried to explain it before when i was talking more about imaginal stuff and particularly in dream work how like yeah if you're doing dream work after you've woken up and you want to return to a dream, see how it unfolds, do kind of the Jungian thing with it. You kind of need to let go of how you think or you imagine the dream might move and continue and just let it sit there until it wakes up and becomes aware of itself and starts moving in ways that you did not tell it to, you did not predict it to. And that was really hard for people who haven't already done like Jungian active imagination, dream work stuff, really hard to get a grip on for people. Cause it's a difficult internal switch to just let the thing work on its own. You don't move it, mm -hmm. let it move itself. Okay. But what do I do? Nothing. You do nothing. You sit and wait. <laughs> <laughs> the you is the problem, <laughs> but in the body, it's much easier to point to and cultivate this particular type of experience and then take it out into other areas of your life. So that's kind of the unique way that the body interacts with this. And also there's a bunch of like secondary stuff that comes out of treating the body in this way where, yeah, you just get a lot better. You get a lot of unexpected material coming up from the body essentially. Because when it's the systematically my me looking at the body, 
what you feel is what you already expect to find there, right? This place is numb. This place is pain. This place, my bone feels weird. My muscle is tight. The things that you already know are there are what you find. Mm. When you move into spontaneous mode, into right hemisphere type stuff, unexpected things come up from the body that you would not expect to check in for. You wouldn't think of, oh, why is there like a memory of me at a state fair with my grandpa that keeps coming up when I move into my knee? That's weird. Let's inspect that. Let's take a look at that. And things like that just kind of emerge from the body. And if you keep following that thread, it leads a lot of really interesting psycho-emotional places that are far too much of a deep dive to get into now. <laughs> but yeah, that's <laughs> a deeper a, dive. The deepest of dives. <laughs> yeah, the body is a unique road into this zone. I would say it's a uniquely efficient and available road in. Nice. So I have a question, which, you know, maybe it should be put in parentheses. So listener beware, but mm. you mentioned the, you know, the, the idea of a humunculus, like I'm, I'm a little person behind my eyes or something like that. What, what, what is the nature of this like centralization of consciousness? I mean, and I do realize that we still have proprioception just today. I was, um, throwing a ball and you know finding it amazing for the umpteenth time that i i know where it is without looking right i mm. would kind of so there's that it's not completely centralized and yes the, uh, but and yet there is a very clear like humunculus sitting there and i find that fascinating so it's true it's like our eyes and ears are around this area but still you'd think that um it could go other places like more easily so does it have to do with the um the fact that some of our senses are like right around it or um or anything else and could it be changed if not permanently um could it be tweaked with so that you would not be feeling like that moment to moment There's like three things I wanted to respond to in there. I might have to jot these down. So first and foremost, the yeah, you mentioned kind of almost in opposition or in complementarity, the homunculus behind the eyes, which I'm noticing right now, just saying it like he doesn't really like being called a homunculus to me. Mine doesn't, <laughs> so I'm gonna <laughs> call him that, but. And then like the reflex of knowing, oh, the ball is going to be here and my hand will automatically reach out and snag it, right? And that those are not the same part of us, right? And a lot of what I'm pointing at with, yeah, spontaneous mode, somatic, somatic resonance, this type of stuff, is that that ball snatching thing starts to expand to more and more of experience where you did not think and plan out reaching at a particular angle mm -hmm. to a particular spot. It just happens. It's spontaneous. It knows that it needs to happen and it happens of itself. And if you, if the you, the little, I'm just going to say head me instead of homunculus, but okay. <laughs> if the head me tries to take control of that process, he will fuck it up 
every single time, right? <laughs> he'll try to look at right. look at it like what speed, what trajectory, where is it going? And he's going to miss over and over again. And we see this in like... Oh, like get, get coordinates in, in XYZ, you exactly. know, get coordinates. And yeah. there's like a term in sports and like performance arts. I think the yips or something. Does that... Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Where that's what happens. You start to this mm-hmm. thing that is so natural and spontaneous for you that you don't have to think about it. It just happens because because you've spent a lot of time training yourself for it, basically. But it starts to become spontaneous, and then you start the head me starts interfering again and going, "Oh no, I can make this better. I can do it. I can." There's a problem with it. I can solve that problem with it, and it fucks you up. <laughs> you can't play yeah. anymore. You can't do the thing that was completely natural just moments ago. And yeah, so that opposition I wanted to point out, that's kind of a perfect encapsulation of like spontaneous, systematic. Those are the things. That's what they're doing. Which also, yeah, is kind of pointed at by McGilchrist's earlier book, Before the Matter of Things, the title of it, The, the Master and His Emissary, that feels apt to me where the spontaneous style of existence is the master. It kind of chooses what we should be putting our attention towards what happens, the things that spontaneously arise from us and want to be followed. And the head me is the emissary, the servant, the one who figures out how to make that happen and goes and gets it done and then takes a rest. He just sets aside for a little while. Right. But yeah, I liked that example. What was the second thing I wanted to respond to? I think I lost it, but your core question, <laughs> the nature of it. Oh, I, I was I was asking, maybe you wanted to refer to the part where I asked if you could somehow uh, change the experience moment to moment to like more. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. This is really interesting because like we... <laughs> I think if you're alive and a modern today, home base is in the head. And that's kind of just where we're at. That's what we're stuck with. That's what we got. It's fine. We can work with it. <laughs> but you do find in like anthropological reports and even not, not even that long ago, a lot of places, that there are other cultures who like if you ask them the question in your body, where are you? Like where is the you happening here? For us, everyone will point at the head. Just like, oh, my me is here. That's where I am. A lot of cultures will point at the chest or the belly. And not so much anymore because global monoculture, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, anthropologists going out to certain tribes, they'll find, oh, the belly, that's where the eye is. Or the heart, that's the chest, the center here. This is me. So it does seem to differ. And part of that I won't get into that. But yeah, so it does seem to differ, A, culture to culture, and B, when I have, I've met people and I've done a certain amount of it myself, but I don't find it very fruitful, where you can like take the me and move it out of the head and into a different part of the body. And like, oh, cool, I got it. So that like, my center of experience Mm -hmm. was the chest for a little bit. I lost it. It's back up here now. But I had it. It was right there. When that happens, the experience is almost always keeping that like homunculus head me systematic mode and just shuffling it around from place to place, basically. 
So the experience doesn't actually change that much. It feels very weird physiologically and like experientially to have it down there. But aside from that weirdness and like the coolness of real, like, oh my God, it is kind of flexible with a lot of work. Aside from that, there doesn't seem to be a lot of like benefit or upside that I see. It's just staying in that same systematic mode, but Hmm. dropping it 10, 12 inches, whatever. (laughs) Right. So I think it is very possible, very workable to do. I would have to be convinced that it is worth the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I would still like to experience this. I don't know that that I have. Of course, I know that in you know ancient Greek culture, the seat of the soul is like above, right above the diaphragm. Mm-hmm. So I know that the, the framing is there. I don't think I got to experience. I got to experience not having any boundaries at all mm. um, with the assistance of drugs, but not quite <laughs> shifted um, uh, in a stable way to a different part of my body. Um, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask another thing which i find interesting in a lot of indo-european um cultures and i know you love uh, greek neologisms you some <laughs> you sometimes come up with them and it's fun to see um the knee right so the the uh, even even that ancient root for the word like the kn or the gn in greek it's related with like genesis right so making and I know that um, in Greek too, that's how you would officially adopt someone is sit them on your knee and then they would become family as well. And uh, the psuche, which is the soul, but also a kind of a, a fluid, maybe maybe the cerebrospinal fluid or something like that would sometimes be identified with it. And they would think that it goes to the knee. I don't know. Is there is there is that anything you've come across at any point, or because this has been a point of be- bewilderment for me for a long time? It's like, what's the special like association of of the knee with with all that? Yeah, that is endlessly fascinating. I do not have a whole lot. Though. The thighs are big for me. The knee itself, not so much. Maybe once I like loosen and free and get my thighs to because i have so much stored like in my upper legs apparently every time i get in there there's a lot to work with and deal with and metabolize so maybe once i get through all of that the knees will suddenly wake (laughs) up and i'll have the knee awakening knee gnosis but what does come up is I have no idea if this is connected whatsoever, but I was reading a bunch of like Myanmar history years ago when I was visiting Myanmar and preparing to visit Myanmar. And a few of like the old warrior kings, there were a lot of phrases going on around like their mighty thighs. And like, I will break the enemy with my mighty thighs. I shall hold up my people with my thighs. And, and it just struck me as odd back then. But I don't know, there might be something there of just like the knee, the thigh, there's some culture that is not as much in the head as ours might have some direct experience of, oh yeah, there's like a seat of being or like strength or something 
in the knees, in the lower thigh. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I'm I'm really glad you brought it up because I didn't know this about the old um, gods in the area of Myanmar, but in uh, in the Hebrew Bible, you take oaths to people and you place your hand on their thighs. So that's... Oh, yeah. Um, right, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So it's... Um, yeah, that's it, it's it's interesting. Um, I'll I'll be waiting to come across some sort of work that tackles this seriously by looking at these ancient texts. And yeah, uh, yeah I'm counting on you to to figure some stuff out and to put it all together into a this nice. Is making me think I should be theory. doing more. Like when I do the work in my legs, I'm like the emotional, imaginal textures and stuff working through metabolizing in my legs. I should probably be keeping better journals of that because that might end up enlightening something later on like oh look the greek said this i saw that okay thank god let's find the old journal <laughs> yeah no that that would be fascinating and i'll be waiting for your uh report yeah if if we are to kind of move all this from the theoretical realm into something people can apply and use then um how do you how do you think like uh, an entry level experimentation would look like for the average person? Yeah. So experimentation and roads in for beginners in yeah somatic resonance this whole general area. There's <laughs> this is a very alive question at the moment because a I yeah I put together a full somatic resonance course that has a bunch of this stuff in it and that was very a very difficult process of trying to arrange what is the most beginner friendly what should i start with what comes later and then finding out from different people like mostly yeah you choose you chose well that did that was a good beginner and then from other people the first three things did not click hit the fourth one and oh my god finally i got it so so mm. partially just that, that like it is to a certain degree personal, what will work. And that's why we have 10,000 teachers trying 50,000 different things so that at some point, everyone will find the way in that works for them if they just keep trying stuff. The best ones that I have found personally, one of them is basically what I talked through earlier, but would usually do as an exercise, which is begin people doing a body scan, sense through your body, feel your feet, feel your ankles, feel your calves and your shins, move up, move up, and then stop that and ask them to notice, what does this feel like? Does it feel like there's a me behind the eyes who is the one feeling? Or does it feel like the feet are feeling themselves? Like, the ankles are becoming aware of themselves. The calves are just shining a little brighter in the experience field. And the me behind the eyes doesn't need to be involved, doesn't really need to be present. He can kind of just take a break, do whatever. And yeah, pretty much I've run this like a lot of times now. And the usual reaction is to the first question. Oh yeah, for sure. There's a me behind the eyes who is doing the feeling. And usually it's someone who's been meditating for a long time, has done a lot of body scans, and is suddenly very frustrated at like, 
oh wait, I've been doing this for years this way. I didn't realize there was like an alternate way to even attempt doing this. And then to the second one, asking, dropping in this prompt of like, let the knees be aware of themselves. Let your hands be aware of themselves. Usually I can get 60 to 70% of people to find that experience as we move into it, meditate through it, do the thing. And that prompt seems to be uniquely good for a certain subset of people. Just let X be aware of itself. And it also works for the breath. If people are doing like breath meditation, is it you being aware of the breath? What can you do to shift it so that the breath is just aware of itself? So that the breath just is and there's no need for you to be or not be aware of it. Even down to walking. That's the only way I tend to walk anymore. It's like, all right, not me walking, but the walking walks itself. And it just really opens up a huge amount of possibility and just spaciousness around the experience. And once you can find something there that, yeah, feels very, very spacious. It's kind of that feeling of when you notice your jaw and your shoulders are tight and you just like let it go. Mm. That, but for your whole everything, <laughs> thoughts, feelings, emotions, body, it all just kind of like, oh, I was holding everything in a very particular shape and it doesn't need to be at all, right? But yeah, so that works for a certain number of people. People that that does not really apply to, doesn't click, maybe they think they've got something on it, but they just can't be sure, whatever. For that, I tend to move along to another practice of basically body breathing, where <laughs> kind of an odd experience. How much do I want to... dip into this one. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having trouble deciding depth at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> basically, we can all find the feeling of like breathing in through our mouth, breathing in through our nose. Cool. That's what's happening. That's what we're doing. It's good. There's another experience that kind of feels like breathing in through different areas of your body, that breath is coming in through your hands, through your forearms, through your legs, through whatever. And this has to be explained differently to different people because for some people it will be, it will just like feel ridiculous of like, no, I'm breathing through my mouth and my nose. Those are the places where breath comes in. That's it. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. okay, so let's explain this a different way so you can find the experience. But however it's explained, there is this experience where on the inhale, you can kind of sense a drawing in, in various areas of the body that there's, a coming in of breath of whatever. And then when you exhale, it kind of drops. It just, it's less of like a moving out than yeah, it just drops. It's like the wind dying almost. And pointing towards this experience kind of serves as like a CPR for body parts, basically. Oh. <laughs> so if you've got, I don't know, a numb shoulder or you can't really wake up your feet, your thighs, whatever, trying this breathing in and breathing out through the thighs, through the feet, through the shoulder helps to just kind of wake them up and helps them over time to, yeah, feel themselves. It is the foot being aware of itself, 
okay, now it's awake enough to kind of do that because I've spent the past three weeks in meditation, drawing in breath through the whole body, letting the breath drop through the whole body, draw it in through the whole body, etc., etc. And yeah, those are kind of two introductory exercises that yeah. capture about 80, 80, 85% of folks. And then from there, I kind of clean up on an individual basis. <laughs> but another nice. one that I'm... Yeah, I mean... Sorry. Yeah, no, I... I I really like it and I've been lucky enough so that at the time when we connected a few months ago, uh, you were kind enough to just tell me, okay, enough with talking about, let's do it. And we did it for a few minutes. And yeah, I can testify that it was a lot like what you um, described that there's a kind of feeling where it's it's definitely unusual and it, it's not the same. There's almost like when... When the usual um, head me comes back online, almost inevitably, I think in most people who are not who are not uh, serious practitioners, you know, there's almost a feeling of almost being under anesthesia or something like that. I was just like, where where was I? Except it's yeah. not anesthesia because it, the the experience. It's not that you didn't have experience at all, but it was just. That part Gun of for a moment, a and that's 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 a yeah. that's a big a big relief, and and I also really liked your framing of you know looking at I am walking versus walking is happening, because yeah, I think that the uh, the left hemisphere with its systematic thinking is very non-participatory, right? It's so theoretical, mm. and it's often the case that while you're engaged in that kind of thinking, not much gets done in terms of actually acting in the world. Mm. And therefore, there is less flow. And for flow, you need to be more in that experiential um, right hemisphere, spontaneous mode, and it's participatory. So I think that does a lot of it. And... I think I, I got at least glimpses of this uh, just from the little exercise that you walked me through, but also other things. And I think that immediately people who do manage to get to this place can see how they can be benefited by moving into this more participatory and non-dual space of like walking is happening. Because one thing that the systematic approach doesn't account for is the importance of flow itself. And that's mm. exactly not the kind of problem which you're going to solve systematically, right? So if people need a kind of paradox to hold on to, a kind of, of koan, if, if you like, it's, it's, it's that. It's understanding what are the things that you're not going to get out of by thinking even harder mm. about them. And I think that's, that, that's like a, a good way of, maybe making yourself ready to say something to yourself like, okay, I'm ready to go and try somatic resonance or any kind of practice, which is going to challenge me. And I'm going to be out of my comfort zone because comfort is by definition what I've been doing for all my life. Um, but recognizing that there are things which are not going to be aided by more thinking. Yeah. 
I like that prompt that just like, yeah, thinking about what are the things that more thinking is not going to help. A related <laughs> one that I really like is, uh, yeah, more focused on like the problem and problematizing thing. It doesn't work for everything, obviously, but for an astounding amount of like the problems in our lives, you can kind of just look at them and feel through, okay, what would I like to no longer be a problem? And just check in like this, not a problem anymore. How does that feel to stop problematizing it and treating it with that problem solving mode? Yeah, one that I'm certainly guilty of, and I see most of us are very guilty of, is our relationships. Relationships don't like to be problematized. Like, how often do you like to be treated like a problem for someone to solve, (laughs) right? (laughs) And yeah, just moving to the systematic, or from the systematic approach on those things out to a more spontaneous thing. It doesn't mean that all the things that were problems and all the little annoyances and whatever's are solved now. It means that they can be approached in a much more open, flowy, spontaneous way that allows, really kind of allows solutions to find themselves a little better, or at least allows things to stop, stop being so claustrophobic, basically, where there's the original problem and that's still there But usually we're creating a second problem on top of that by creating so much tightness and constriction around that problem. And now we can at least solve part of that wad. We can take away all of that constriction. And the problem's still there. This thing that needs to be addressed, that needs two people, five people, however many people are in this relating thing, still needs those people to interact with each other, find ways through it, find ways around it but you're no longer clamping down on it in these ways, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think that was a a major life lesson that at some point it wasn't really connected with with a one epiphany or anything, but something which I noticed at some point in my life is that it, it it's two different things to think long term about desired outcomes let's see let's say and results of actions so in other words kind of see a possibility of something this um that's desirable happening in the future it's a very different thing to then actually concern yourself with like trying very hard to bring it about because mm. actually the systematic thinking I think is very useful in in charting a possible path and we should be mindful of the fact that it could it could be not happening because some unforeseen things are going to disturb the process but seeing a possibility um but it's a very left hemisphere thing <laughs> I like we're just this is now the Ian McKinley's <laughs> podcast <laughs> but you know it it also tends um to really want to manipulate and like bring these things about and it turns out sometimes that all this manipulation is going to be way too much force like being put on this thing so i'll, I'll give a concrete example at some point when i was living in the forest in georgia i had this uh, romantic interest in someone 
And I think this was the, the first time where I was looking at things and especially like at a young age and stuff, you just, the hormones are going to tell you to like get closer and, you know, try to get as close as possible, as fast as possible and it's like get to the target and <laughs> that. Um, and I think it was the first time where I kind of applied this idea of like, let's see what happens if I see a, a, a possible future, but I don't try very hard. Actually, I'm going to take the course of action that doesn't really uh, directly tackle this thing and approaches it very quickly, but I'm just going to, at every junction, make the move that just goes just a step forward, you know? And like, sure enough, within a few months, it's like came from her side of things. It's like, oh yeah, um, it was ho horrible, ended up horrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but that that idea was was very was, was really stuck with me, and I think um, it's not just about not problematizing at all again, but it's just recognizing that the systematic thinking is going to be about these things which are to come in the future. It just shouldn't be so aggressive, and and we shouldn't try so hard. And again, this. It brings me back to the image of, of the ball and how we know so intuitively to catch it. And again, you don't want to be present there with all this thinking in the move. So I wanted to come back to it. And now I did it somehow magically because I wasn't thinking about it. And <laughs> um, really applying it and see how things kind of happen without us trying too much would that be um kind of your experience is that like how would you frame this thing when applied what does life feel like when you're not trying too hard yeah i actually i actually have like a full article i wrote on this a while ago oh good. i'll send it to you after i think it's called something like stop yeah, yeah. running at problems head first or something mm-hmm and yeah, there does seem to be, I'm not sure how much explanation I have for it, except it just seems to be how the world works. <laughs> but yeah, that like running at a problem head first and doing the, I liked your language earlier of just like achieve the target, get to the target. Yeah. <laughs> and doing that doesn't always, or even particularly often in a lot of fields, seem to be the actual way to get to get done what wants to get done right and a lot of time just kind of weird indirect routes where like yeah you turn over to the unconscious or to the right hemisphere or to your systematic self or whatever you turn over to some let's just call it mystery i guess just turn the goal over there and like i want this to come about and I'm going to keep light focus and awareness on it. And just every time an opportunity comes up to like address it, move towards it, act on it a bit here and there, I'll take that opportunity, but I'm not going to like go head first at it. It's going to be very spiraling and even just like nonlinear. And that seems to work much better most of the time <laughs> for a lot of stuff. <laughs> And yeah, part of it is beyond explanation. Like I've just had a lot of weird experiences with this where I'm like, 
nothing mm. I, I can't explain how this worked so well so reliably but it did okay oh well <laughs> but there is also an element i think of like yeah just the fact that you are not one thing that helps open the channels is that you are not getting in your own way all the time by yeah focusing right you blinker yourself to everything in the surroundings except this one thing so you're missing a whole lot of cues that you could be open to and working with and just being aware of but because you're focused on the goal on the target you miss all that stuff around it so you make things worse for yourself did that make sense was that were those yeah no absolutely absolutely and i also have an image in my head of you know going back to that ball that you're attacking with your eyes mm -hmm. and in spontaneous mode i think you do make the necessary adjustments with your hand that's kind of reaching out there your whole arm extends with time to be the right on time right you don't transport yourself already into the future and like extend your arm like very very uh, abruptly because that's actually going to change your reaction time in case you got it something a bit wrong about where the ball is going to be yeah and i think that's another feature of being stuck in our heads for very long is that you can a lot of the times like already transport yourself ahead and then completely miss the the kind of features of the terrain which are actually going to be helping you get to these places because there's a lot of un uncharted territory and um yeah again it's just it's just it just makes sense that you would not extend yourself and think all the way through and transport yourself to the future but rather enjoy because there are going to be those branches that you didn't know existed so you can still keep your eye on the ball or keep your eye on mm -hmm. the target but also really have this sense of of where you are and use things yeah. which are popping into into consciousness i really like that example of like yeah catching the ball and how like you slowly move your hand out to adjust for yeah when you look at the ball and your body suddenly knows oh nope a little to the left a little further back and go rather than just snapping it to where you think it will be and yeah that's another like quality of the systematic mode is that like total certainty that it knows mm. what is best and it knows what is happening and so yeah just snap it to where it's going to be and totally sure there's no problem here can't be wrong and misses it entirely <laughs> as opposed to like yeah spontaneous mode there's this thing I like to call uh, exploratory humility, where, yeah, there's just this unknowing a bit where you are fine that you do not have all the answers and have to keep exploring to, like, push the edges of the answer. And that seems like a really good image for that exploratory humility of reaching out for the ball and mm. just noticing the way that the hand on its own almost just moves a little further left, a little further right, your body takes a step back to meet the ball where you realize it's going to be. And that, yeah, it's an ongoing process of figuring out. You don't just snap to certainty. Exploratory humility. Finding the zone. Finding where you're going to do it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Uh, yeah, well, I 
I feel like we talked a little bit about the origins of the idea and what it did for you and even gave a little test for a uh, taste for people of how they might begin to um, deal with that. But I would love uh, for you to actually tell people if they do want guidance to begin with uh, somatics and somatic resonance, where they can find uh, you and your course and everything else you might want to to put out there. Yes. So I am at the underscore wilderness at basically every social media, but I'm, I'm most active on Twitter, very active on Twitter. And just to re-clarify that, very active. Very active. <laughs> <laughs> just to yeah, re-clarify, that was wilderness, not ness. So the wilderness. And yeah, I think in my pinned tweet, I've right now got a new somatic resonance cohort that I'll be running starting in the middle of January somewhere. And I'm also working on, I'm, I'm making really good progress, actually. This is going better than expected <laughs> on a course that ties together more of both the somatic and the like mythopoetic cognition aspects of my work. I'm running a Twitter poll on naming that right now, but it looks like it's probably going to be called something like, what's winning? Integrated aliveness. That's the one that's winning at the moment. Wasn't my favorite, but it's winning by like 60%. So. <laughs> You and you and Elon put put your future in the hands of the Twitter put mob. Put it in the hands of the yeah, Twitter that's... mob. I'll probably run two or three more <laughs> polls on this, but this one is very much built to be me expressing myself to like beginners who have not been watching my work for the past few years for whatever reason, who whatever these type of people are who haven't been obsessively keeping up with me. <laughs> I guess I should explain myself to them. <laughs> but no, it's the focus is very much on like wider explanation, keeping things more simple and structured and just like letting in people who don't already know everything I'm on about. So very beginner focused. And yeah, it's, I, I'm enjoying the planning process. It's going really well, but that won't be for a couple few months. They will find that on my Twitter and also on my website in the wilderless.com. That's about it. Yeah. Sweet, man. Well, this has been, this has been a, a great pleasure and I really like some of the ideas we um, arrived at uh, through these, just me throwing the ball today and catching it. It's amazing, right? Yeah. How much you can build around just a very kind of a mundane of activity. A lot of good stuff came out of that simple Simple image prompt. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> yeah, well, River, thanks so much for, for coming yeah, on. Thanks for and me uh, on. We'll keep, keep in touch. Always welcome to come back with more interesting stuff. Later, man. <laughs>